0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in History. My name is Marshall Poe. I'm your host. Every week we pick a new history book and we interview the author of that book. These are books that we find particularly interesting, and we hope that you'll find them interesting as well. This week on the show, we have J.D. Bowers. He teaches at Northern Illinois University, and he has a recent book out called Joseph Priestley and English Unitarianism in America. I very much enjoyed my talk with Professor Bowers. And I hope that you'll enjoy it as well. Here's the interview. Hi, J.D. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm I'm doing well, thank you. That's very good. Uh, today we have um, J.D. Bowers on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Joseph Priestley, and English Unitarianism in America. Um, J.D. teaches at Northern Illinois University. Um, actually, I think I have friends there, J.D. I've, it's been a while since <laughs> I've talked to them, but it's a very large department, isn't it?
1: Uh, yes, we you, have you got, uh, about
0: 32 faculty. You've got bunches of people. That's more than we have here at Iowa. So I suspect we probably shouldn't have like uh you know, a basketball game or something. We probably lose although I play basketball, so we might be good. Um anyway, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and where you went to school and so on and so forth, how you got into history, that kind of thing.
1: Okay. Uh I grew up in Northumberland, Pennsylvania, which actually is where Joseph Priestley settled when yeah, he that's came right. to America. It's in the so, book. That's interesting. Uh my parents still live about four blocks from the Priestley House. Wow. And uh, the Little League baseball field is actually in what was once Priestley's front lawn that, uh, from the house, you know, the typical English home that he had built, you know, sort of sloped down towards a vista to the river. And, and uh, when the canals came through in the 1820s and the railroads later, it bisected the yard and eventually the town acquired the lower half and it's it's now the, the Little League baseball field That's where great. I played Little League. That's so amazing. Um, and, and I always kind of liked history growing up because of the priestly house and there's Fort Augusta and there's a lot of Indian heritage and culture around the region and, uh, Gettysburg is within a, a very quick drive as well as Philadelphia. And, and so from an early age, I started getting interested in history and, um, uh, my parents, when I begged and pleaded them when I was 10, uh, agreed to take me to Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. And uh, I fell in love with the place so much so that eight years later I applied to uh, go to college at William & Mary. Is that right? Uh, yeah, and it was it was a fabulous decision for me. Um, uh, it it uh, You got to live in history. You got to work in history. You got to study in history. Yeah. I, I worked for Colonial Williamsburg. Wow. I worked for the National Park Service at Yorktown. It was just a kind of a fascinating experience for me
0: that's fantastic um
1: and yeah it is it's 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 sort of why you know why williamsburg is there in in many yeah. ways uh yeah, and so uh, it made a lot of sense to me to uh, continue to when I uh, I took about three years off uh, after uh, my undergraduate years. I, uh-huh. I needed some time to recuperate.
0: <laughs> and, um, Who doesn't?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, it was pretty punishing in many ways. Yeah. Um, and after uh, after three years in college admissions, which I had decided that pretty much anybody could pass out brochures at a at a college night. Yeah. Uh, I decided to go to grad school and uh-huh. um, went to Indiana
2: uh-huh.
1: and uh, worked when I was at Indiana. I worked under the late Paul Lucas and Bernard Sheehan
2: uh-huh.
1: and Steve Stein and Bob Orsi. So uh-huh. I, I crossed between history and religion. And it was Paul Lucas who encouraged me to, to think about the kind of local history and history as uh, something that reaches out to the community Instead of just doing history for history's sake or for other historians and adding something to the historiography, he really encouraged me to think about adding something to uh, a community that i I knew about and a community that I was uh, involved in
0: a person so, a person after my own heart because that's kind yeah. part it's part of what we're doing here today, I think on new books in history <laughs> so,
1: right, and I think it fits really well with with sort of my overall philosophy which and, and i've um I've enjoyed. The notion of going out and speaking to Unitarian churches and speaking to groups uh-huh. of people and uh to me you know we we can't just I, I use the the saying that we can't just all sell pizza to each other uh-huh. uh we we have to start selling pizza to other people outside the the pizza community so, right. Right. <laughs>
0: um
1: and and some people agree with that and some people don't and well,
0: I certainly do, and I congratulate you on your work. I mean, I I um I wrote very obscure books that nobody read about early Russian history for the first part of my career. And then <laughs> I, I, I kind of always knew that nobody was reading them, but uh, it was really brought home to me after I worked in publishing for a little while. And then I decided if I was going to come back to academia that I would try to take a greater role in what is sometimes called, I think, Poorly public history. I just call it history, right. um, and try to get the word out to people about various things. And things like Colonial Williamsburg are obviously terrific in that way. But I think we need a lot more of that kind of thing, particularly, you know, in talking about monographs such as yours or any monograph. Because there's huge oceans of literature out there that can be read by people, but it just doesn't ever reach them. So right,
1: and particularly in religious history. I mean, you know, for a while there, of course, religious history was. Always kind of denominational and written by the ministers or by a parishioner, and and, and almost kind of very hagiographic in a way, yeah. you know, celebratory of everything. And then, of course, in the 1960s and 70s, with with um, the critical approaches and things, everything got to be far more abstract and and. Um, you know, I'm on the Unitarian Universalist listserv, and of mm-hmm. course, th- they don't read academic monographs. Yeah. They're not interested in that because mm-hmm. it really has moved so far away yeah. from what their interests were. And, and they don't feel that many academic monographs talk about them.
0: Right?
1: Uh, they can't see themselves in these, these books. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was kind of a, a nice way to say, well, let's step back a little bit and let's look at, uh, a, a group of people, you know, as a denomination, as a and, and their congregations that are adhering to uh, a set of ideas, and mm-hmm. and let me talk to the Unitarians again. Let me mm-hmm. see if we can engage them in sort of a, a discussion that uh, brings us halfway. And mm-hmm. and I've argued that case that public historians are sort of we're in the middle uh, if we're in a, a university because we're not out there like Williamsburg and where we're dressing up and talking to the people. Uh, and we're not the we 're not the local historians who are just digging through the church archives we 're kind mm-hmm. of trying to do something different
0: yeah and that's a tough thing i don 't think most people realize what a tough thing that is to do in academia because our metric for success is basically the scholarly monograph right uh and as a junior member of any department, especially one that requires a lot of publication like i 'm sure that um northern um, illinois does it it would be not in the best interest of a junior colleague to write a popular history book, I think. Right. Um, and uh, but then again, it you know, and this is kind of the paradox of it. Once you have tenure, it really doesn't matter, but we still don't seem to write them. <laughs> I, I don't get it. I, you know, right, right. I don't really understand this, but we don't it, we don't seem to write them. So it, I,
1: it, you know. Yeah, I mean, your field, of course, um, Bruce Lincoln was here at NIU. Oh, yeah, no, and, absolutely. And, uh, no, he
0: was a force of nature in terms right, of Right, and yeah. that was
1: his whole goal, yeah. was to no, say, I want to take Russian history to the people. And, and he did. And, know? yeah, 14 books later.
0: Right, of blessed memory. Yeah, Bruce, absolutely. No, and he, yeah, he should be a model for all of us. Right. But, you know, in terms of professional advancement and things like this, it just really isn't, it's not really going to get you anywhere. Um, So I think there's a strong disincentive against doing it. Um, Also, I think a lot of academics look down their nose a little bit at it. I I, I would say that I honestly did before I worked in publishing for a while, and then I realized, you know, that basically this is the way that uh, scholarly communication gets out to the public, and that is through these books, it's through people like Bruce Lincoln and yourself that this actually gets out. You know, it's actually beating the pavement and talking to people about these right, things. That's right. where public education, right. public historical and, education occurs.
1: And, and, you know, if all things go according to plan, in, in two months I'll get that final letter that says, congratulations, you're tenured, and yeah. so I'll have done all it. All right, Drew. then you can
0: write that book. Right, right. <laughs> well, good luck with that. We'll, when Thank that, you. When that book comes out, we'll interview you about that one as well. <laughs> yeah, so when you were done at Indiana, you said, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, where did you go then?
1: Uh well I actually taught for 6 years in private schools and okay, really? secondary schools uh-huh. I um Paul Lucas was my dissertation director and he passed away uh-huh. rather unexpectedly at the uh-huh. age of 54 mm-hmm. and at that time I wasn't sure I wanted to finish and and I kind of you yeah. know it was a jarring thing to lose your mentor sure, and absolutely. so I I took the opportunity to go and teach um at a private school in Honolulu mm-hmm. Uh, I was offered a job at a school in Honolulu and a job in Ohio, and I had to weigh my choices very carefully there. So, um, and I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it immensely, I and um, I taught there for uh, three years, and then I taught for two years uh, at an all-girls school outside of Washington D.C., mm-hmm. and I did a year also at a private school in Montevideo, or Uruguay, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and and it was a nice. It was a really nice life in many ways. I really enjoyed what I was doing. I enjoyed the connection with the life of the students beyond uh, beyond just the classroom and things. And uh, while I was teaching in Washington, D.C., a colleague who's now a colleague here at Northern approached me at uh, one of the um, OAH conferences and said, we've got this position that's going to be coming open and, you know, you might be a, a good terrific. candidate for it. That's so, terrific. Uh, I was flattered, and and I applied and fortunately got the position.
0: That's fantastic. You know, I just wanted to talk to you for a second about Now, this is on a high school level you were teaching, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because I have students come to me all the time who say, you know, I I don't want to go directly to graduate school. I want to teach in high school for a while and then maybe go back to graduate school. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there a career path for people to do that now? Because in my day, uh, I think I'm a little older than you are, that was impossible.
1: I think I think it is possible. I mean, there's you know, certainly there's the Madison Fellowship, uh, which you know offers high school teachers a chance to come and get a master's. Uh-huh. Uh, now that requires some specific. Uh, track of study usually government and and you know history of the of the great presidents and uh-huh. things but um, there's there's a lot of people who are doing that you know there at the time I was ABD and I wasn't alone being ABD yeah. I oh, wasn't, hardly there, there there were a lot of PhDs that yeah. taught at these schools yeah. and um, so you know the thing with private schools though of course is they want somebody with at least a master so they want yeah. somebody who knows their content for sure and right. they'll teach you how to teach. Right. And they they did a, you know, I think they did a really good job. I, I appreciated the efforts that they put into helping me craft and shape me as a teacher and, and, and really show me a good path.
0: No, I think you're um, absolutely right about that. I mean, cutting your teeth on high school students is uh, a terrific preparation. I, I personally have never taught on the secondary level myself, um, but my mother was a terrific junior high school teacher her whole life, and I think I, uh, got a little bit of it from her, but we know we have you know when we my junior colleagues here you know they, they come from this or that school you know a big program like Indiana where they're surrounded by intellectuals and they have great students and they come to a different sort of program and they're thrown into the classroom. It's often the case they're at sea. They don't know right. quite what to do. I'm sure that you weren't in that case, having had all that experience on the high school level.
1: Well, yeah, and, and you know, I mean, I, I honor my high school colleagues who teach far more than we do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, I, what... if I was teaching five sections of APUS, yeah, that means
2: I, tell you I was
1: running through U.S. history five times a year. Yeah. And and here at the university, I teach, you know, half of the survey right. once every year. No, uh, right. no. So so there's a lot more uh, a lot more chance to improve your teaching and to work on no, your. No, that's
0: teaching. exactly right. You know, it's practice, and practice does make perfect. And I, you know, I just applaud you. That I think it's a terrific career story. I just it's a it's um
1: well thank it, you it's,
0: it's inspirational to me, and I'll, I'll have a different thing to say to my students when they come and um, have decided to go to secondary education than might go on. Yeah. Um, so after that, then you uh, got the job at Northern, mm-hmm. and you've been teaching there how long? Uh this was my sixth year the end of my sixth year. Mm-hmm. And I take it you're enjoying it there? I am very much. Yeah, very I, much. like I said, I know some of your colleagues and they're terrific people. Yeah. Um, it's been a
1: it's been a wonderful challenge and uh I, I've gotten a great deal out of it and I'm very appreciative for all the opportunities that that I've gotten through
0: being here. Well, that's terrific. Um, And I'm sure the deans are glad to hear that as well.
1: Yeah. yeah. If they're listening,
0: (laughs) J.D. is very happy. Um, um, So let's talk a little bit about Joseph Priestley. Uh, Now, I I took a class in college uh, called the Enlightenment. Was, I went to Grinnell College, a little bit of okay. college, mm-hmm. which I loved, and I had this transformative experience there. And we talked about a guy named Joseph Priestley uh, who invented the theory of phlogiston. Is that mm-hmm. right? Is this, yes. This, this is the same Joseph Priestley.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so uh, tell is, us
0: about the life of Joseph Priestley.
1: Um, well, Priestley was uh, born and raised at the center in England. And in religious terms, that basically meant that uh, his aunt, Sarah Keeley, who had raised him, uh, was... Uh, not a member of the Church of England. And so uh, she believed in kind of openness and and tolerance and and educating her nephew very broadly. And so as Priestley grew up, he was forced, because dissenters could not go to Cambridge or Oxford, uh, he was forced to go to... Uh, various other colleges that were set up for dissenters like Daventry Academy
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh explain he,
0: explain just briefly for the audience what a dissenter is
1: uh anybody who was not a member of the Church of England yeah, well, uh yeah. you you basically you were either in or out uh-huh. in England and because you if you were not a member of the Church of England of course you were also not allowed to hold any political office right. because of course the church and the state were, were joined yes Uh, So it actually, and and of course, tithing was required Mm -hmm. uh, in England, and so to be a dissenter really meant one had to stand by one's convictions to say, I don't think the Church of England is right, and I reject the involvement of the the state in the church, and I'm going to pay heavily for that in terms of my career opportunities, in Mm -hmm. terms of my educational opportunities, and if I'm going to support... My beliefs through a church. I also still have to support the Church of England,
0: and this includes both Catholics and Protestants. Oh, this
1: included yeah, everybody. For, yes. yes, absolutely. Catholics, Protestants, uh, Unitarians, ultimately yeah. Presbyterians, mm-hmm. uh, Baptists, Quakers. Presbyterians. So, you know. I
0: didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, go on about Priestley. So he is a he's a dissenter. He's a dissenter, says, yeah. and
1: he, he's he's raised in a very you know he and educated in a in a very liberal tradition uh, as you said he's he's an enlightenment figure so he's raised in an enlightenment tradition and uh so he ends up later in life kind of he he's like jefferson he he's a master of a lot of things he really involves himself in a lot of uh enlightenment areas uh he he never considered his science to be his Vocation. He always said that that the ministry is my vocation, science is my avocation. And so he basically is playing around when he gets the opportunity to play around in experimenting through scientific uh, processes. And so through that, not only does he develop the theory of phlogistocin, which of course becomes oxygen Mm -hmm. uh, under Lavoisier, as he he called it, Mm -hmm. Uh, Priestley saw it as the absence of something, and Lavoisier said, no, it's the presence of something, and that's where they differed. Um, but he also came, he also invented eight other gases or not invented excuse me he discovered eight other gases uh-huh. and uh, he invented carbonated water. And he invented
0: carbonated water. He
1: does. We have Joseph Priestley to thank for Coca Cola. <laughs> That's astounding. Is, is uh, you know my my elixir of life. So every day I pretty much think about him. That's uh,
0: astounding.
2: He he
1: also wrote about Franklin's kite experiment. Many people don't realize uh, that did Franklin that, did not write about that until afterwards. He gave Priestley permission to write about that oh. first in his uh, two volume history of electricity. Wow. So he really did dabble in these science things, and I think most people, of course, know him as a scientist. But uh, in his I did. Part, I
0: confess that I did. I mean, right, I and that's
1: fine. That's, that's perfectly fine. Even when I go to the priestly house today... Uh, I know where the money is, and I know where the bread is buttered. And of course, it's it's the lab that you know that he built in the house that right. is, is pristine and right. and well funded and supported. And the kids come to see you know a local high school teacher, Ron Blatchley, do the chemical experiments and blow things up. They don't come to talk to me about religion, right. um, you know. So I know how it all goes. It's the it's
0: the, <laughs> the money's from the NSF, not the NEH. That's right. That's right. <laughs> don't we know it? So. Uh, you know, so Priestley was was
1: really kind of this very interesting interesting character, and friends with just about everybody we know. Yeah. Um, friends with Jefferson, friends with Franklin, friends with John Adams. Um, yeah, I mean, he was a, a supporter of the American Revolution. He um, firmly believed um, that uh, in, in the theory of inf- the greatest good for the greatest number. In fact, Bentham sort of paraphrased Priestley in putting that that phrase mm-hmm. together. So Priestley was the first one to develop that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, he truly, truly was an Enlightenment figure.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how does he um, how, get us into uh, Unitarianism with okay. Priestley then? Explain, first of all, what Unitarianism is, because I think a lot of people don't know. Okay. Although, His, although I've had to say, it's one of the most telegraphic names for any denomination I've ever heard. <laughs> yes, that that's true. Yeah. That's true. It,
1: it's meant to be pejorative, of course, like like many denominational names originally were. But uh-huh. um, it, it simply means that there is one God. There is no Trinity. Uh, he rejected the notion of of God the Father, God the Son, you know, God the Holy Ghost. Uh, He held, and and other Unitarians held, that Jesus was just a man. Mm -hmm. He was a very special prophet. Uh, Certainly he was a prophet appointed by God, Mm -hmm. but he was not God, and, Mm -hmm. and Unitarians went to great lengths to point to verses in the Bible that specifically said, you know Jesus calls himself a man mm-hmm. uh, and and not God. Mm-hmm. So and, and phrases like Son of God yeah. were were supposed to be metaphorical that we're all sons of God mm-hmm. uh, or, or you know daughters of God if, mm-hmm. if uh, we want to be gender neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so the Unitarians believe that there was just God mm-hmm. and they dismissed all these other um, kind of what they. Called contrived you know, nuances and explanations for things in the Bible that they just didn't see fit,
0: and they did all this on the basis of the investigation of the scriptures it, themselves.
1: On the Absolutely, special
0: the authority.
1: He priestly read uh, multiple languages, and and he would go back to the Greek versions uh-huh. uh, and translate directly from the Greek.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So that's where he drew his his
0: interpretations from. Mm-hmm. And uh, explain to us that the origins of Unitarianism as. as as it connects with Priestley himself. It must have started out very small.
1: It did. Uh, In fact, I mean, there were a lot of people hanging out uh, within established churches who had always had questions about the Trinity. And they, you know, it it took some time to sort of coalesce into a movement. I mean, John Locke, if you read some of his earlier writings uh, on religion, of course, Locke is making or, or putting forward expressions or statements that, uh, many people interpret to mean that he is starting to reject the Trinity; that he mm-hmm. accepts the unity of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, you know, takes uh, more than 200 years or so before this, you know, with the influence of the Enlightenment, before this rationalism and this reason and this um, this way of, you know, very simplistic way of approaching an explanation for God emerges.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Priestley himself passed through as as he said and others said he passed through many other different beliefs before he finally gets to unitarianism mm-hmm. um and he actually starts to call his theological belief socinianism
2: socinianism
1: uh, yes yeah it's named after Faustus Socini uh who was was uh, a thinker out of Poland and had some you know pretty basic views on that there is just god and uh, the, the direction in which the Bible should be interpreted and, and how we should you know, think these things through. Mm-hmm. Um, and now Priestley kind of takes that and changes it a little bit, but, but it becomes known by that name,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, both for negative reasons and positive reasons. Um, and later on, of course, one of the unique thoughts that comes along with Priestley's theology and his belief structure is the idea of soul sleep. Which is that the when the body dies, the soul remains with the body until the mm-hmm. time of the resurrection,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: which is very unique, you know many people often you know believe that the the death, of course you know in in emulating what happened to jesus the the soul rises again you know on the third day and mm-hmm. um then went up to to heaven and stayed in heaven mm-hmm. with God until the resurrection when Everything would happen again.
0: I'm, I'm, um, as a, I'm pardon, pardon me for interrupting, but as an Eastern Europeanist or a Russianist, I'm interested to know if you know how Socinianism got to the ears of Joseph Priestley from Poland to England.
1: But it passed through Poland and into Italy, mm-hmm. uh, where where he actually uh, Faustus and his uncle uh were were rather well known uh-huh. and Priestley's just reading very, very widely. I see. Uh there's a group of Transylvania Unitarians uh-huh. as well and they're sort of the early originators of all of this. Oh, is and, that so, right? uh-huh. yeah, and so yeah, and if you look in, in the the historiography of Unitarianism, it usually will trace its its emergence sort of out of Eastern Europe, Transylvania uh-huh. Then into England, uh, uh-huh. just kind of through the intellectual enlightenment exchange, yeah. uh-huh. uh, and then from England, of course, into the United States.
0: Uh-huh. Remind me, were there Unitarians in the Radical Reformation? Were there Unitarians in the uh, that is by the doctrine, not the name, in the 16th century? Just...
1: Yes, there were, and and they're they're hiding out. Yeah, uh, I imagine
0: they were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, again, they're not
1: people who really want to um, make a, a big case out of this, and and that's the thing uh, for a lot of people. Unitarianism was okay to believe but but it wasn't their central belief and and again we need to we need to separate ourselves from our modern investment in religion in some ways and where where Jesus really is very prominent mm-hmm. in in Christianity today, but mm-hmm. there was a time prior to about eighteen forty, eighteen thirty, in there, where Jesus was not the prominent figure. Mm-hmm. I mean, when when Edwards is talking, when Jonathan Edwards is is threatening his congregation, he's threatening them with God, not mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it wasn't so bad, in many ways, to believe this. But nobody was going to go out on a limb and say, you know, we're going to be our own denomination, right? We're, we're going to separate from you. A lot right. of people hung out within their their congregations and denominations, and simply kept the idea, uh, but but didn't really say that this is the break, the make or break kind of idea that we have to hold.
0: I think that's a really interesting point, and it's good for the audience and for me to hear. I mean, that the the modernity of our kind of kind of civic Christianity that is mm-hmm. sort of generic Protestant Christianity in the United States, where Jesus is at the center, and you know, personal salvation is uh, you know, kind of even closer to the center than that, I think it's very interesting to hear that there was a time in which this wasn't the case. I mean, it's kind of analogous to the sense since Easter is coming up, you know, in the Orthodox calendar, Easter is the big festival. That's That's, right. that's one that really matters. Whereas Christmas, which is central to our calendar, is important but was not and still is not terribly important there. Um, right. I, th- I think the varieties of these things and the way they change over time are is, is, is kind of opaque to people. So it's it's very good to hear that. Um so not surprisingly, if I remember correctly, Priestley gets drummed out of England.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um both for his political views, of course, you know, supporting the American Revolution was not a popular stance no. um and and ultimately for his religious views. And as, as he latches on to other like-minded believers, uh, they start, uh, particularly Theophilus Lindsay, they eventually, in 1774, start a church uh, in London, and Priestley's traveling there, and, and they gather a congregation, and it's a fairly large congregation. I mean, the opening ceremony couldn't even be held in the entire chapel. Huh. Uh, they, they had people flowing out the windows and all these other things, um, And so, ultimately, of course, he's seen as a as a threat. He's seen as uh, undermining both the church and the state. Uh And though it's not conducted by uh, by official, you know, military men and things, uh, it's encouraged by the crown, by the local sheriff and things, to ramsack his home, his lab, his church and And he basically is forced to flee.
0: this is in what year does does this ransacking occur? uh
1: seventeen ninety uh uh-huh. is is the uh the church and king riots right. and and so then he kind of spends the next three and a half years or so uh roaming about trying to figure out what he's gonna do he He petitions the crown for. Uh, for compensation, uh,
0: which is actually, we have a very detailed inventory of what he lost. So the the let me just take a step back. The act of toleration of the late 17th century that just doesn't protect dissenters at all.
1: No, in in fact, <laughs> Unitar- Unitarians were excluded from that act of toleration. Oh yes, okay. Um, yeah. And and of course, it's one thing to put a law on the books, but you know that that doesn't mean that the people have to believe it and follow it.
0: Yeah, no, I can tell you about my. Um the people that live across the street from me who leave trash all over their lawn. Um, <laughs> yeah, I Nothing I can do. Um, yeah, anyway, go ahead. So well, he, well. so,
1: I mean, honestly, I mean, the, the citizens and civilians took took matters into their own hands. Right, and exactly. and so, uh, you know, he kind of, he, he gets himself set up in a few other positions in England. Uh, but, but really, he's faced with a choice of his, his family is not going to have any prospects. He's three young sons, right. all in their late teens, early 20s. Uh-huh. He's got a daughter who's fortunately married off to a to a member of the Church of England, so she's a little protected. Uh-huh. Uh, but his sons have no prospects, and so it's, it's France or the United States. Right. And uh, I think fortunately for him, uh, since of course his fellow scientist Lavoisier lost his head in the French Revolution, yeah. uh, Priestley chooses to go off to America
2: uh-huh.
1: with uh, with some support, with some financial backing from from a few people who who believe in him and believe his ideas uh, and with the payment from the crown for the destruction of his of his goods. Yeah. Uh, And he, you know, comes to Philadelphia. He he lands in New York. He's greeted, uh, you know, the next day by Washington and Adams. And he's kind of celebrated in the press as the venerable Dr. Priestley. Interesting. Uh, From there, he travels on to Philadelphia uh, um, where, you know, Franklin had already died. but, But Priestley had heard so much. From, from Franklin about Philadelphia that he thinks that that's where he's going
0: to make his home. Is this kind of a publicity opportunity for the new American government? You know, we've, we've got your ah. great scientists now, and not only that, but we're not going to oppress him for his religion? Yeah,
1: I don't know. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that they were using it that cynically. Um, <laughs> there, there's uh, William Cobbett, um, who was better known by, by the name of Peter Porcupine, uh, was an English immigrant as well, and um, just went after Priestley. Uh, just just said how much of an insult it was that that this country would welcome such a a person and such a disbeliever, uh-huh. and so I, I don't think that the government really was given that kind of opportunity, okay. even if they had wanted to
0: use it. I see. Okay. So, okay. So he makes his way to Philadelphia. Philadelphia was quite a place at that time, wasn't absolutely. it?
1: Absolutely. Uh, you
0: talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean.
1: It had a you know the college that Franklin started. In fact, they they offered Priestley a post there. Okay. Um, it was you know ready to to be the the nation's capital. Uh-huh. Uh, it was uh, it, it was everything that I think that that a major city could be in in uh-huh. early America at that uh-huh. time. And so uh, Priestley found it to be very cosmopolitan, but he also found it to be very expensive. And you, you know now you're talking about a man who's going to be living on. The charity of others and and hopefully be be able to get a parish uh, but but how, how did he live?
0: I suppose he was just supported by whom
1: yeah he he basically had funds that he could draw from, and in Philadelphia, there were the Vaughan brothers, John and Benjamin Vaughan, and they were once students of Priestley's, and so they were able to give him some financial support I as see. well mm-hmm. uh, he 's also living off of uh, of some English funds. France had bestowed some money upon him. Uh, in attempts attempt to sway him to move there, as a matter of fact. And uh-huh. Josiah Wedgwood is kind of channeling his English money uh, uh, for him. And, and Wedgwood, of course, is going to supply him with many of the goods and, and things that he
0: needs. Why did the French want him?
1: Uh, because, again, he would have been a great scientist. Yeah. I, I think yeah. the French, actually, you, you brought up the issue. I think the French, more than the Americans, would, would have seen this as an op- a public opportunity to yeah. say, you know, we can stick it to the British one more way. Yeah. Um, and and Priestley, Priestley had traveled on the continent uh, when he was uh, a younger man and was well-liked, and his scientific experiments were so notable that, that they would have really taken that opportunity.
0: The French are always looking for an opportunity to stick it to the British, that's aren't right. they? I mean, that's pretty much their their purpose in life, <laughs> to do that, and vice versa. It's incredible. So does he start to build a congregation then in Philadelphia?
1: He did. Uh, you know, there were people who were already sort of looking for a leader. Uh, the Vaughan brothers were among many who were already here. Who, you know, as English immigrants, uh, as English dissenters, they found the toleration uh, to be legally emboldening for them, although they didn't find it to be so accepting uh, on on the practical side. But Priestley's presence um, had been kind of preceded in the 1780s by. Uh, one of his followers and proteges, and um, so his writings and tracts had already been distributed in America. They were already present in many of the libraries. They were already um, Americans were aware of who this man was. Yes, and and he, his his arrival sort of heralds the the sounding of okay for the English community, uh, particularly in Philadelphia, and for the very liberal community in Philadelphia. Here's a man we can rally around, and so. By two years after his arrival in seventeen ninety six uh he arrived in ninety four but in seventeen ninety six they already put together a church they I put see. together a congregation and um Priestley had already made the move to Northumberland, which at that time is a, is about a five day ride uh-huh. uh, but uh, he's he's kind of doing the traditional English thing, and that is he lives in the country where things are cheaper and where he seems, you know, life is a little better. Of course, mm-hmm. Philadelphia was dirty and yeah. full of disease, and uh, they certainly had their cholera outbreak in 1793. Mm-hmm. Um, but he'll travel to, to Philadelphia in the summer, mm-hmm. and uh, he eventually signs on with this congregation. But in the meantime, of course, he's also in Northumberland starting a second congregation. Uh-huh.
0: And why did he pick Northumberland particularly? Is there any sort of discreet reason there?
1: Or well, did you just like it? His sons were going to become American farmers, uh, kind of in the the Crevecoeur model, I uh-huh. guess. Um, and there was a, a track of land known as the Loyal Sock tracts that a bunch of English immigrants were looking at coming together and pooling their finances, I and see. they were going to purchase the track and make a settlement. Gotcha. Uh, so, so, you know, not quite a utopia, but nonetheless a settlement. And so Northumberland was the closest settled town to the the, the track,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: it sits right along the uh, right on the confluence of the east and west branches of the Susquehanna. I see. It had fairly easy access to Baltimore down the river. Uh, Philadelphia, of course, is getting closer at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Northumberland has a postal run already. Um, so th- there were a lot of reasons to settle there.
0: Mm-hmm. And it must have been beautiful. <laughs> it must be beautiful. It is. It's, yeah.
1: it's still beautiful. Yeah. Uh, you've got the mountains that come right down right. to the river. You've got these two branches and, and islands in the middle of the river. Incredible! It's, it's a broad river, so it's not very deep um, uh-huh. and easily fordable. And, and,
0: you know, back then, of course, today we do it with bridges. But um, We have um, dirty snow here in Iowa. <laughs> oh wait they have dirty snow there too yeah, I so. do, yeah. <laughs> this time of year particularly the, yeah. know, the snow melts and it uncovers all the sins of the winter that's um, right so tell me then um, I'm very interested in this question about the American Unitarians where do they come from or where do they claim they come from
1: well, that's that's one of the the two major things that I try to to examine in my book, and and uh, I respect uh, Conrad Wright, who is in my opinion the dean of Unitarian scholarship in this country. Mm-hmm. And Conrad Wright, for many years, has written that the Unitarians in America are indigenous,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and by that he means that they came completely out of an American experience, uh, that they were completely shaped by internal. Uh, aspects and internal developments, and they came out of congregationalism. Uh, yep. Quite honestly, they they came out of what was once Jonathan Edwards' church, which right. was once the Puritan church. Right. Um, again, it's a it's a lot of people who are who believe. Slowly but surely, they coalesce these beliefs together that there is just one God, um, but they they have this very real. Kind of fear that they can't make this the central point because they could be excommunicated they in New England to be driven out of your church was very serious thing mm-hmm. um they're sort of uh both by choice and by force hiding out mm-hmm. for for lack of a better phrase
2: mm-hmm.
1: um believing this and and eventually they come to call themselves the liberal christians,
2: yes exactly uh
1: now and and I think it's an important point to make uh marshall that that priestley. And, and Channing, who we'll probably talk about in a few minutes, but, but none of these Unitarians, no matter what their unique theological beliefs were, saw themselves as anything but Christians. Yeah. And people ask me, well, how can Priestley say he's a Christian? Well, he remember, he said that Christ was a prophet, and a very special prophet, and, and he lived a life that Priestley emulated. In fact, Priestley celebrated communion. Because it was the act of the prophet at the Last Supper,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but he was not, you know, he was not the Trinitarian Christian, and and I think that we live in an age where we don't often examine uh, that kind of question of of who is a Christian and can you be a Christian and, and denounce Christ's divinity? Yeah, uh, and, and of course most people will answer that as absolutely no. But again this was a different time when yeah. people were were answering the question very differently and there wasn't this litmus test necessarily.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they're all Christians. Uh it's just a matter of uh, you know to which they can they can fight against the establishment uh-huh. and in New England that's a very serious thing for them to be doing.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Uh so it will take some time in, f- in fact it's not until 1819 that the New England liberal Christians those who hold the unitarian belief publicly go forward and state that they are Unitarians and that they will call themselves such. I see. So you can see the time period by, you know, at which this is all happening. I mean, the Unitarian idea comes out in, in easily the 1730s and 40s in mm-hmm. New England. We start to know that there are people who are professing uh-huh. this. But it's going to be you know, another 80 years before anybody's willing to say, we're our own denomination mm-hmm. now.
0: So it's underground for a long time. Now, did the American Unitarians then know about the Unitarian Church in England and in Philadelphia and in Northumberland?
1: Yeah, everybody did. In in fact, one of the arguments that I make is that for a long time, because these liberal Christians are in existence in New England and are staying internal to congregationalism, that all the, the, the known public... Uh, awareness of Unitarianism falls on the feet of Priestley yeah. and his followers and his Socinian theology.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, if you if you read any of the religious encyclopedias of the day, uh, and and there were numerous works that were trying to sort of you know, this is the religious landscape of America, and these are the groups we see, and here they are. Uh If you read them, they're all, when it comes to Unitarianism, they're all talking about Priestley. Really? They're all talking about the English influence. They're all talking about his Socinian theology.
0: I see. So how would you characterize the connection between, in terms of influence, between the English utilitarianism of Priestley and the later utilitarianism of the, I guess, reformed Congregationalists? Well, it's, it's, this seems it's, to be the the nut of the question, right? right. There, yeah. It's a
1: it's a tension-filled uh, relationship, of course, because now the, the New Englanders, because they still have this Unitarian belief, but they have this congregationalist tradition, they start to create a, a new theological midpoint, and, and between what Priestley's Unitarianism is and Trinitarianism, and it's known as Arianism. Yes, and. That is that they believe that Jesus is half man and half divine, that God actually did take Jesus into heaven and bestowed divine status upon him. Uh, and I have a wonderful way of showing this in my classroom to my students. i I have a picture of Christ that actually comes from the Eastern Orthodox Church because I love the iconography of the Eastern mm-hmm. Orthodox Church. And so here's this image of Jesus uh, and, and you know all you know surrounded by gold and and the halo and everything else. And that to me represents the fullness of 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 Christ's divinity. And then I split it in half and only show half of it. And I said, well, that's the Aryans. Mm-hmm. They believe that Jesus was half there and, and half not. Mm-hmm. And then it's blank, the box is blank for Priestley, who says, no, he's just a mere man. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, so you really get this kind of tension-filled relationship between the two groups. And uh, there's always been religious arguing. There's always been you know, religious infighting and backbiting and, mm-hmm. and backstabbing and attempts to denounce those who believe differently than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's happening in the early Republic, and there are many many uh Trinitarians who are trying to not only attack Priestley but then attach Priestley's ideas to those liberal Christians in new England
2: mm-hmm.
1: and Of course, the liberal Christians don't want that they right. because they know that that's very dangerous ground that it it you know Priestley was very, very courageous for for being so public with his ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and look what happened to them in England, that they really feared that something similar could happen to them. And so they are honestly going to spend the next 30 years really trying to separate themselves and distance themselves mm-hmm. from Priestley and the, the English Unitarians, and they're ultimately going to win.
0: Uh, do you think they do this for political reasons then? In other words, they're trying to accommodate the Trinitarians so that they can kind of find a modus vivendi in Boston and Absolutely. distance themselves? Yeah, uh-huh.
1: Absolutely. Uh and in fact in, in 19, or in eighteen oh five, excuse me, um, they went so far as to they got into a dispute over who could name the the person who would hold the chair of theology at Harvard and it leads to this long dispute that goes to the courts. And the Unitarians actually can then walk away with church property, and they get the right to appoint the Harvard professorship. I see. So, so there's there's a lot of there's political, a lot at stake here. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and and so to be branded though as these um, as, as these non you know non Christians as these radical Socinians, just for many New Englanders was just untenable,
0: uh-huh.
1: and they they just couldn't allow that.
0: So the uh, American Unitarians then needed to construct a, a usable past, as we say. Yes. And who was in charge of that?
1: Well, ultimately, it becomes William Ellery Channing. He uh-huh. seizes the he seizes the mantle. He's the one who steps forward uh, at the ordination of a Socinian minister, might I add, in Baltimore, which had been sort of under the influence of the English Unitarians. He steps forward and says, "We are the Unitarian Christians. We hold the the mantle." We hold the the power, and this is what Unitarianism is.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And and Channing was a pretty reputable minister. I mean, uh-huh. uh, and for him to go into, sort of the you know not the home of the enemy that's a little too strong, but to go into a place uh, where where a Socinian had had worked and was being ordained, and uh-huh. somebody who had affections for priestly Jared Sparks, and do that really kind of took everybody by surprise and claimed the ground so that almost overnight you can see uh, the the public's perception of Unitarianism shifting. And, and Channing and his followers do a really good job at convincing the public that Priestley was nothing but an interloper.
0: So prior to Channing speaking out in this way, had the um, English Unitarians and the American Unitarians considered themselves part of one faith?
1: No. Uh-huh. No, they're really trying to avoid that. Yeah. they're really. I mean, the English, yes, I, I, I will be. Fr- I mean, the I English, think, Unitarians, yeah. yes, they they keep. I mean, you know, they keep calling even from England. Thomas Belsham keeps reminding the Americans that hey, you're with us. Uh-huh. You're, you know, we <laughs>
0: Americans we're, we're, are saying no, we're not. Right, absolutely,
1: <laughs> and and so it's you know it, it's all this kind of perspective thing that you know it you know reminds me you know that the old joke that you know boyfriend girlfriend break up the boyfriend says okay the girlfriend says no
2: yeah
1: <laughs> you know are right. we broken up if yeah, she if, right. yeah, if exactly. one of them says no right. and and one of them saying no and the other saying yes yeah and the trinitarians are only too happy to take the answers that they want to hear
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh anything that weakens the opposition so they're gonna latch on to the English side of that and, and, and use that as any any means necessary to attack them.
0: So do they succeed in erasing this early connection between English Unitarianism and American Unitarianism?
1: Well in in the facts Until uh, you, of course. <laughs> yes. Well they they do in many ways. I, I've never I've never said anything different. Um the the fact of the matter is Priestley and his followers maybe had thirty congregation's to total uh-huh. uh, th- this is not a you know this is not a prominent idea in America, even today I mean uh-huh. if you get on to uh get into the census figures and and look at the number of Unitarians, they're under one percent of the American population uh-huh uh it's never been a, a major major idea in america and uh-huh. and so for priestley uh and his followers they weren't extremely numerous either. Uh, and the fact that Boston, and it becomes known as Channing and Boston and kind of the center of, of this new thought, uh-huh. uh, that they're far more numerous, they take far more churches with them when they, they take their split. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty successful in, in attempting to claim the ground. Uh, and, and I don't want to say that they go to the extent of trying to completely erase Priestley's legacy, mm-hmm. uh, but but they're pretty good at saying... And getting their own believers around to the point where they don't talk about it for about twenty years.
0: I th- really <laughs> that's funny.
1: And yeah, I, I I take the Will James, you know, in his varieties of religious experience, he talks about this. He talks about how, you know, the, those who that there are always denominational infighting, mm-hmm. uh, and that those who win then seek to actively erase the the losers because they don't want theology sure. to ever be seen as as changeable as malleable. Sure. Uh, So they have to expend a lot of energy doing that. And and I see that uh, verbatim uh, Mm -hmm. replicated in what the Unitarians were going through during this time period.
0: Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. Now, um, was there anyone prior to yourself who was as impolitic enough to bring up this um, rather, I guess from their perspective, disturbing legacy? (laughs) Well,
1: modern Unitarians don't seem to have a problem with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you you go into a Unitarian church and you'll find just about anybody from everywhere uh-huh. Uh you know Unitarians who were born Unitarians, Unitarians who were converted from something else uh-huh. uh they they see the variety in their own church today, and for them it makes sense to to look back and see this plurality, this diversity, this variety uh-huh. um Andrew McCulley has written a really nice book on Unitarianism in the South, and um he I'm, I'm looking forward on myself yeah. as we speak, one of those things, you know. Um, it's called Unitarianism in the Antebellum South, uh-huh. uh, the Other Invisible Institution. And so his subtitle, I think, is great because, you know, again, it talks to the the, the way in which Unitarianism was often not very visible, not very numerous, not very large, but, but it's still there, and it enjoys prominence among a lot of the intellectuals.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so he did a really nice job in his book of exploring sort of the Scottish connection uh, in, and how that flowed into the Scots who came into the South. And, in fact, uh, a Scotman by the name of, of William Christie is a follower of Priestley, and, and he comes over and takes over Priestley's church in Northumberland when Priestley mm-hmm. dies. Uh, and, and so theres he, he offered that up maybe about four years before my book came out.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and
1: he was really helpful in giving me some encouragement and, mm-hmm. and pointing me in, in various ways to look at yeah. Uh, but I'm pretty much in uh, in opposition right now to to the you know Conrad Wright's work and yeah. and the others who have followed. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see. I, I, I'm giving the um, annual address at the Unitarian Universalist Historical Society on Are April
0: you? 11th. Oh, that'll be fun. Um,
1: and and I guess Conrad is going to be the the commentator. <laughs> that'll be fun. <laughs> so it'll be uh, you know.
0: Kind of I consider off. it. Yeah, I, I consider it to be a great blessing to have somebody in your field who you disagree with and are collegial with. That, that right. makes things a lot better. Because I know that, he, Yeah. Go ahead. Uh,
1: he's he's been wonderful. I'm he sure, he yes. wrote me letters. He he supported That's me great. and encouraged me. He he gave me a lot of different uh, ways of thinking about and looking at this. Uh, so it was nothing but a positive. It's That's nothing been nothing but a positive
0: relationship. That's really terrific. So, uh, as a kind of closer, tell me a little bit about. Um, Unitarianism in England and the United States today. Well, there's the, still Priestleyites in. I, I, sorry, I just made up that term in England. <laughs> uh,
1: the English, the English development goes a little bit differently. Uh, Robert Asplund sort of takes control, and, and ironically, I should say that that both the English and the Americans formalize their Unitarian structures on the same day in 1825. Oh, really, but, but they don't, of course, you know. There was no internet, so they didn't yeah, know right. uh, but um <laughs> yeah, it takes months before they figure yeah. it out um they they continue to prosper they you know the Socinian idea if we're gonna say that that it's the mere uh idea that Jesus was mere man, yes, priestly wins, uh Channing and the Arians lose uh-huh. um Unitarians today just believe that there is a god, uh-huh uh they they don't believe that Jesus was anything more than a prophet mm-hmm. so uh but it but nobody's sitting around cheering that kind of victory right. um that's that's not their style and their take on it all right um but the, they continue to they continue to i wouldn't say thrive but they continue to exist they continue to do well um in nineteen sixty they were unitarians were uh, i think on both sides many people felt they were they were begrudgingly uh in a position where they had to merge with universalism mm-hmm. in order to sustain themselves okay. in the united states uh-huh. uh unitarianism still exists solely in england uh-huh. uh as its own as its own group uh-huh. um and uh, both, you know, kind of continue on in this this vein of saying we're the ones who who have the rational thought that this three-in-one mathematical formula yeah, doesn't work. Right, um, exactly. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting. I, I go into Unitarian churches a lot these days, and uh, I really find that um the the congregation really is reflected in its minister and so there are there are unitarian christians but there are unitarian uh liberals who, uh-huh. who just absolutely denounce even god
2: huh. uh yeah. no, I you
1: heard know that as and all. so um 2003 william sinkford the president of the uu uh, association um dared to to step forward and say you know maybe we need to bring god back into the conversation mm-hmm. and what an uproar! <laughs>
0: yeah, <really>? that didn't <laughs> go very well. No,
1: they're still seething about it. Oh, really? Oh my! <laughs> uh, three years later, the conversation is still over mm. whether or not that's even appropriate to raise that. Wow! So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a it's a very interesting division, and and there's actually a group now in the United States that's going back to Priestley's ideas. Oh, really? And yes, and they're claiming the old name, and uh, they're they're claiming that we need to be Christians, and um, So uh, there's even uh, a man by the name of Anthony Buzzard at Atlanta Bible College who is a conservative Unitarian theologian.
0: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So, uh,
1: you know, the the diversity and the the complexity of Unitarianism continues.
0: That is so interesting. So why don't you tell us um, what you're working on now and what your next project is, if you have one.
1: I do. Uh, um, I'm going to step away from from Unitarianism for a little bit, although I I do want to work, uh, as one of my next two or three projects, I do want to work on a modern history of Unitarianism, Uh kind of tracking these changes that I was just talking about since the 1920s. Uh Uh, But my my next upcoming project is going to be on the role of religion in the American public sphere Uh Uh uh, between 1893 World Parliament of Religions and the World's Fair in Chicago, and 1921 in the burial of the unknown soldier. That's terrific. Um there's a, there's a lot of public events, very very public events at you know, Jamestown World's Fair in 1907. Uh-huh. Um I I just went to the Jamestown 400th anniversary celebration and and, and so I could sort of experience that uh you That's know terrific. as part of this, but I want to look at the way in which religion makes it into the public sphere mm-hmm. and into the public conversations, mm-hmm. but then I want to look at to see if those public events reshape religion mm-hmm. uh, and and what the congregations and denominations are well, it doing. it sounds
0: like a really terrific project, and I wish yeah. you the best of luck on it. Well,
1: thank you. Thank you. It's my sabbatical project, so yeah, exactly, I'm looking forward right.
0: to it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the sabbaticals, they go by fast.
1: That's well, right. J.D.
0: Bowers, we've taken up enough of your time. We really, really appreciate well, having thank you, you on Marshall. the show. It's been great. Um, and um, we will talk to you soon, okay? Okay. Thank All you right. so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with J.D. Bowers, the author of Joseph Priestley, and English Unitarianism in America. My name's Marshall Poe. I'm the host of New Books in History, and we'll see you next week.